MSW Media. The rule of law is not just some lawyer's turn of phrase. It is the very foundation of our democracy. The essence of the rule of law is that like cases are treated alike. That there not be one rule for Democrats and another for Republicans, one rule for the powerful, another for the powerless, one rule for the rich and another for the poor, or different rules depending upon one's race or ethnicity. To serve as Attorney General at this critical time is a calling I am honored and eager to answer. So yeah, now it's clean up on aisle 45 time. And for a long while yet, it is going to be clean up on aisle 45. Welcome to episode 141 of Clean Up on Aisle 45. It's Wednesday, October 4th, 2023. I'm your host, Pete Strzok. Hey, Pete. I'm Allison Gill. Uh, we're going to try to shove 10 pounds of news into a five-pound bag today. Hmm. Uh, we have, as my dad used to say, we have a ton of filings, rulings, and hearings that went down in Fulton County, Georgia. And we have the first guilty plea. Uh, also, Bernard Carrick's lawyer, that crackerjack Tim Parlatori, has told CNN that Bernie Carrick has been subpoenaed by DA Fonnie Willis, but says he will demand immunity in exchange for his testimony, lest we just plead the fifth the whole time. Which may yet come to come to occur. But we also have more sanctions uh, in a filing in the Ruby Freeman Shamos defamation case against Rudy, as he served also with a lawsuit from Hunter Biden. A partial summary judgment in the New York Attorney General's case against the Trump Organization, with that trial now underway. And the evidence-free impeachment hearing that, shockingly enough, blew up in James Comer and Republicans' faces. But first, we've got some new patrons to thank. Patrons, thank you. You make this show possible. I am constantly uh, in awe and uh, just can't express gratitude enough for your support. But this week, new patrons Kelly Cavanaugh, Nancy Swope, Bev Cavanaugh, McKay Clausen, Silas Frank, Lisa, and Anne-Marie Miller. Again, thank all of you all so much. Uh, we deeply, deeply appreciate your support. And again, we couldn't do this without you. So thank you very much. So, Allison, let's go down to Georgia, where we have our first guilty plea. One down, 18 to go. Scott Hall. This is from Tamar <laughs> Hallerman at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Bail bondsman Scott Hall on Friday became the first defendant in the Fulton County election interference case to take a plea agreement with prosecutors, signaling the probe had entered a dynamic new phase. During an impromptu hearing, he pleaded guilty to five misdemeanor counts of conspiracy to commit intentional interference with the performance of election duties. Hall agreed to testify truthfully when called five years of probation, a $5,000 fine, 200 hours of community service, and a ban on polling and election administration-related activities. He also recorded a statement for prosecutors and pledged to pen a letter of apology to Georgia voters. <sighs> His community service can't be running elections. We just put right. that out. <laughs> right. Yes. It's like, hey, I tell you what, I'm going to go take care of all this voting infrastructure for, you know, however many hours, <laughs> however many elections 200 hours makes. No, he can't. He can't do it. But look, I mean, you know, we joke about one down 18 to go. But, you know, there's always, particularly for people, well, anybody, when you have a group of people that's indicted, there is a rush of decent attorneys to try and talk to prosecutors and say, hey, look, you know, if my client makes a deal, what can he get? 
And in this case, you know, five misdemeanor counts are not, you know, there, there's very, there, there's not, you know, jail time. So part of it is, uh, you know, there's a great deal of incentive depending on what you can give. Um, and we can talk about that too. But, and then once you start, once people start making deals, the, the availability of future deals starts suddenly drying up. So, you know, the first one in frequently is the, the first one to get the best deal. So we'll see if others come. I suspect there will be additional pleas. But, you know, it's important because, you know, he Hall has a lot of connection, obviously, to Sidney Powell. I mean, maybe not obviously, but everything going on in Coffee County. But he's also got, Allison, like connections to national level folks, right? Right. Yeah. Because, I mean, we know now Jack Smith, at least in the federal case, is looking at the breaches of voting machines in multiple states. And he played uh, a large role in that. And there's also uh, like a 63 minute phone call between him and Jeffrey Clark. So that sort of drags Clark into this as well. So this could impact other cases. And I wanted to ask you, because I know you've been through a lot of cases with multiple defendants. You know, you just said that, you know, the first the first flipper gets the best deal, but future cooperators can still get a deal. Have you noticed sometimes that once the first person goes, that that might open the floodgates to sort of other make other people feel comfortable? Because we, we haven't really seen that too much in some of the other cases, like where we know, for example, um, in one of the Jack Smith cases, when Tavares uh, agreed to to play ball, that that didn't have really any impact so far, at least, on Walt Nauta or uh, De Oliveira. They're still holding fast. So, I mean, I know that there's always going to be a group of people who just aren't going to flip no matter what. And they're also unflippable because they're terrible witnesses and nobody wants anything from them. I'm thinking like Rudy Giuliani, for example. But could this open the door for other people? I know you said it might make them reticent, like it could dry up, you said, I think. But could it also maybe could we see a few others? Because it seems like it like nobody wants to be the first to go, but you do. But then other people follow. You have way more experience in this than I do. Yeah, so that's a great question. And there are a bunch of things going on. I mean, again, this is my experiences at the federal level rather than the state. But I mean, I think there's several similar motivations that are going on. One is that these things take time, right? I mean, it just from the time an indictment is announced, usually for subjects and their attorneys to get on the the schedule for meetings and discussions with prosecutors, it it takes that that just takes some time to get organized. So ordinarily, you know, there won't be a block or a gap while those things get worked out. And then when that logical time that sort of just the administrative amount of time it takes to work out, then that opens up and you start seeing that window where pleas are announced. There's always also, you know, you indicated, yeah, that that everybody brings a different set of potential value to prosecutors. Some people, if they're not credible witnesses, don't have a lot of value. Some people, you know, the state may say, or the federal government may say, we have evidence gaps here, or there are some areas where the evidence is weaker than it is at other places. And in some instances, it may be like, yeah, you know, I'm making this up completely, but, you know, Hall could really give us critical evidence about the on the ground ins and outs on Coffee County that we've got everything we need on Sidney Powell except for this one element, and he has huge value there. So for a prosecutor, that makes a plea agreement worth a lot. And also, you know, so, and then, 
kind of exchange that everywhere. You know, somebody like on all the ins and outs and things that were going on with Eastman and people involved with Eastman and the stuff that, you know, the uh, the intimidation of, of uh, Seamus and Ruby Freeman. You know, th- these there are these discrete different things going on where different individuals, different defendants bring potential different value to the prosecutors. And then certainly, you know, if like you and I were involved with, say, Sidney Powell and something, when I make a deal... You may still have information that I don't. You may still be able to corroborate the same information and testimony that I'm going to provide, but it's not as valuable. So think of it as whatever, as a as a indicted person, the, the information that you have in your head, some of it's unique, but a lot of it may overlap with others. And the longer you wait as other people make deals, the value of that goes down typically, not always, but frequently will. And so if you go into a, you know, I can give you one through 10 to the, I can give a prosecutor item one through 10. You can give the prosecutors, you know, six through 10 plus 11. So if I'm giving, you know, if I'm giving one through 10, your six through 10 doesn't really matter as much because they have it from me. So it's a very, you know, we, we use the word dynamic phase and that's exactly right. I think there are, as this evolves, and we can talk some when we get to, to Bernie Carrick. There is an interesting interplay between the state process and the federal process in terms of the prosecution. Well, right, because I was thinking of Mark Meadows, right? Because he's indicted in Fulton County. Um, and, you know, I was wondering if he cuts a deal with federal prosecutors, does that immunize him at the state level? I don't think it does. No. But he no. has very different information from, I think, that, uh, you know, somebody like Mr. Hall would have. Right, they, they they are not, and typically you have you want what are called coextensive, and you know this is something that we when we talk about um, Bernie Carrick, we'll we'll see it there um, in this in, in discussion about his potential immunity. But you th- those are separate processes, and certainly as a defense attorney, you're going to want to say, look, my client, I want like I want one immunity deal. I want whatever he's going to say, whether it's the federal folks, whether it's the state folks, whether it's the local folks, whoever it is. I want him immunized across all of those different levels. And the thing is, they don't like a federal prosecutor cannot grant state immunity and vice versa, as far as I know, completely. So there has to be a coordination, one on the part of the defense attorney, but some of that has to be on the prosecution side to sit there and say, hey, look, you know, talk amongst yourselves and coordinate because we want a sort of blanket deal. That may or may not happen. Um, and certainly, you know, the other thing that's interesting with Hall is like, remember Hall, and this is, I think, at least Washington Post reported it, but Hall, according to an email by Georgia, then Georgia State Chairman David Schaefer, Hall was acting at the request of David Bossie, who's a Republican operative. He was one time, he, he used to be Trump's deputy campaign manager at one point in time, and he heads the, there's this conservative activist group called Citizens United. He also happens to be related to Hall. So when you look at, again, this is moving outside of sort of the Georgia environment, when you start looking at these national level actors, the question with Hall is, how high do his connections go outside of things that are just going on within Georgia? And then in fact, again, if he decides to cooperate, you know, what sort of communications there might be between Fonnie Willis and saying, okay, you know, when he comes in for a complete proffer, is there any sort of communication, even the lightest of touch to sit there with the with the federal with special counsel Smith's office to say, hey, look, you know, he came in or he's coming in, and you know, we're going, we plan to explore these topics or here's what he said. So, it again, it gets complicated fast, 
and this is you know the first of first of nineteen. So I, I'm certain all eighteen will not get cooperation deals, but I would expect to see at least I'm my guess, uh, you know, at least one or two more. Yeah, and and let's talk about uh, Bernie Carrick because this is out from uh, Paula Reed and Zachary Cohen at CNN uh, just today as we're recording this. It's breaking. The the Fulton County DA's office issued a subpoena for former New York Police Commissioner Bernie Carrick to testify in the cheese the cheese bro and Sidney Powell trial that happens that starts on October twenty third, uh, and uh, Carrick's lawyer Tim Parlatore is demanding that his client be granted immunity in exchange for testifying, pointing out the prosecutors indicated in the indictment that Carrick is a co-conspirator in this case. He's not named, but we know him to be co-conspirator number five. Now, in a letter to Fulton County uh, DA Fonnie Willis, Parlatori wrote, no competent criminal attorney would allow Mr. Carrick to testify absent a grant of immunity and that he will invoke the Fifth Amendment and refuse to answer questions unless he receives written assurance he will not be prosecuted. And, you know, honestly, this is, I think, the right move for for Bernie Carrick, um, because he hasn't been indicted, but there's sort of this sort of Damocles hanging over his head that he could be indicted, sort of like what Durham did to Joffe in the uh, Sussman case. Well, you know, you could be indicted, but we're not going to tell you. And he's like, well, then I want immunity. I'm not going <laughs> to, you know, that that's like one of the times that you, you know, you, the pleading the fifth makes sense when you could possibly be indicted. You haven't yet. And no one's guaranteed that you won't. And uh, Fulton County prosecutors allege that Bernie took part in several meetings with lawmakers in Pennsylvania, Arizona and states where Trump was contesting the results. And so that's kind of what makes him also probably beneficial or at least this would have an impact on some of the federal cases. Uh, And Carrick previously sat for an interview with Jack Smith uh, or at least his office to answer questions related to the aftermath of January 6th. And according to Parlatori, Carrick received a standard proffer letter before agreeing to that interview. So, again, this brings up that question. If somebody testifies in state trial, can their testimony be used against them in a federal trial and and vice versa? And like you said, it gets really complicated really fast because there has to be some coordination, not just between the defense attorneys, but between prosecutors as well. Right. And Parlatory notes that in his letter that, you know, CNN got a hold of that suggesting that Fulton County prosecutors, quote, coordinate with the special counsel's office to obtain co-extensive grants of immunity. So, you know, again, the point is that's Parlatory suggesting that occur. He can't make them do that. He's saying, I, I want this blanket uh, immunity agreement and you all are going to have to put your heads together if you want a deal and, you know, put the onus on them. You want my client's testimony, you're going to have to work together to figure out, uh, you know, what that looks like. But again, it's taking a step back, I would remind everybody, you know, former NYPD police commissioner is a felon, is a federal felon. Granted, he was pardoned by Trump, but he was convicted of <laughs> tax fraud and lying in federal mm. court. So if I'm a defense attorney, and again, not, a pardon doesn't erase a felony conviction. A pardon just you know erases the, 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 the penalty. So he will forever be a felon, forever be convicted of lying to White House officials. So if I'm any of these defense attorneys and they, you will out Bernie Carrick on the stand, you're like, okay, well, you know, so you're, you're telling me, uh, tell me about the, uh, you're a convicted felon. Yes. And what were you convicted of? Okay. What were those lies? Let's go through them one by one. So you've already proven that you are a known liar, a convicted liar, 
why should we place any credence in what you have to say to this jury today? So, you know, and especially, oh, and you were, you were the first, let's talk about it, you were the first NYPD commissioner to be prosecuted for corruption in over 100 years. You know, the, the New York's finest, right? That's, that's, that's what she led? Okay. So I, I think, you know, Bernie Carrick, the thing with the CNN is it's clear that Parlatori is fronting a lot of this information. He's providing his spin. The article, in my opinion, right. slants very much towards a story that Tim Parlatori is trying to put out there. It isn't necessarily a balanced one that you might expect if the other side was sort of throwing out those facts. It's like, well, maybe Bernie's testimony, yeah, it's important, but maybe it's not that important or certainly, certainly, 100%, he comes with baggage. He's a convicted liar. Mm-hmm. And so- you know, we'll we'll see how it plays out. I, you know, Parlatori is doing a good job as a defense attorney trying to get his client a good deal. But, uh, you know, I'm I'm curious to see where he shakes out. And like you said, I mean, he is named as a unnamed co-conspirator in Fulton County, but he is not on, on the federal stuff so far. He's not co-conspirator one through six. No, and also interesting. You know, it makes you kind of go, oh, maybe this is why uh, Parlatori left Trump's legal team. <laughs> <laughs> he could he could be defending uh, somebody testifying against his other client. Uh, but who knows? Might have been something else. Probably was just Boris Epstein. Just everybody, you know, didn't want to deal with him and left. But we, we won't yeah. know. Uh, there's a lot of palace intrigue that happens with this uh, with this legal team, this crackerjack legal team of uh, of Trump attorneys. All right. Well, interesting, and you know, we'll see how it all plays out. I mean, this this Georgia case is sprawling. We're still um, working our way through the federal cases, and this trial is um, going to happen in October. At least the first two people uh, who you know wanted a speedy trial. So, we have more stuff to discuss uh, about what's going on in Fulton County, but we need to take a quick break. So, everybody, stick around. We'll be right back. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn-in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane, and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA. As a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler, how much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary. They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, Show me, in a courtroom, how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. 
So you have a man in an Armani suit standing in the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th. Or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now. Hey, everybody, welcome back. We have some more patrons to thank. Thank you so, so much. You make this show go. Patrick Scott, Irene Hartfield, Alice Graves, Michael Nowlin, Catherine Britton, and Elizabeth Sweet. You are the best. We couldn't do this without you. If you want to become a patron, get your name shouted out. We will read whatever name you put. You just go to uh, patreon.com slash aisle45pod. That's A-I-S-L-E 45-P-O-D. All right, let's stay down in Georgia. Let's discuss some rulings and filings. And there's a lot this week. First of all, Judge McAfee, who is the judge presiding over the Fulton County case, uh, made a ruling that the jurors' identities will be protected. They will only be known by number. And uh, this is something Fonnie Willis asked for. And he, he granted it. He also denied Kenneth Cheesebro's motion to dismiss his his case and his motion to suppress evidence from his Microsoft email account. So no and no, you're going to trial on October 23rd. And because his his motion to dismiss was saying, I'm a lawyer. You can't I, I can't be a criminal. That was basically his argument. And Fonnie Willis filed a motion saying, sorry, lawyers can be criminals. And so and the judge agreed with the DA and so dismissed that. And then also, like I said, he wanted to suppress emails from his Microsoft email account that failed as well. Now, Judge Jones, who is the federal judge down there, has denied Jeffrey Clark's motion to remove his case to federal court. Now, you'll remember Mark Meadows's motion failed. And and if anyone was going to be able to remove his trial to federal court, it would have been Mark Meadows. So as we thought, Judge Jones says to Jeffrey Clark, nope, it's the state. Uh, now, Judge McAfee, back to the state judge, he decided that Cheesebro can keep his lawyer. There was a conflict of interest filing by Fonnie Willis because Cheesebro's lawyer used to represent Brad Raffensberger, who is going to be a witness in the trial. And both Raffensberger and Cheesebro waived the conflict and said, we don't have a problem with it. And so McAfee has said Cheesebro can keep his lawyer. Um, he also set dates for the non-speedies. And I learned this term <laughs> watching um, some proceedings uh, when he was trying to set some dates. Uh, the speedies are speedy trials. And because, the, you know, the defense asked, I think it was uh, Rafferty, that was a lawyer for Sidney Powell, said, are we going to have this in courtroom 5A? And he's like, yeah, we should be able to do this in 5A. We've got some other speedies we got to get through. And I just thought that was adorable. But uh, he set the date for the rest of the defendants, the defendants that are not Cheesebro and Sidney Powell. The discovery for the rest of them, and that includes Donald Trump, um, there's a discovery date for the DA. She has to have all her discovery in by October 6th, which is just in a couple of days. Then discovery for the defendants, they have until December 4th to hand over all their discovery. And then he wants all pretrial motions by January 8th. And Pete, that sounds like a pretty expedited schedule to me. Yeah, it is. And keep in mind, I mean, what, we've got two speedies, maybe more will add. But again, you're talking with one pled out. That's easy, more than a dozen for sure. And that's a lot. And I, you know, like you, I listened to Judge McAfee and I, at least for the 
some of the the speedy trial stuff, I was impressed. I was impressed as well. I mean, it was via Zoom. And again, the great thing, and I pray it comes to the federal system, the great thing is that you and I and everybody else can log in and watch this, and it's all broadcast. And I was impressed with Judge McAfee. He, he knew his stuff. He was calm. He was measured. He was not... You know, he he was ruling very fairly. He was expressing skepticism at both sides, I thought, at different times, very reasonably. Had a very clear command of all of the procedural sort of issues and the timing, and that if we do something, what that means in terms of follow-on actions or things that would be needed. So unlike, my opinion, Judge Cannon, who doesn't seem to know what the fuck is going on in her courthouse— Judge McVeigh, on the other hand, seemed to be well in control in a polite, orderly, wise, knowledgeable sort of way that, you know, if it's any indication of what's to come, I was like, all right, well, this is going to be, it'll be a fair process. So, you know, that's, that was, that was my takeaway from all of it. But it's, you're right. It's a ton. I mean, all of this is a ton. We've got, you know, 10 pounds of crap in a five pound bag today, but I I think, not worry. I mean, it's great great to talk about. We're going to be like that for a while to come because this is, you know, as we said before, Trump can kick the can down the line only so far before all of it catches up and it's all catching up right now. Yeah. And something else I noticed about McAfee, he's not afraid to make decisions from the bench, unlike uh, Eileen Cannon, Judge Eileen Cannon, who you brought up a minute ago. She'll listen and then retreat back to, I don't know, wherever she goes at night and, uh, and then wait two months and then put out a ruling that she probably was heavily advised on um, from clerks and stuff. You know, I'm not insinuating that, you know, she was heavily advised by anybody on the <laughs> on the Trump side of the table. But you know what I'm saying? Like he was able to say, all right, well, here's what we're going to do with the voir dire. We're going to bring everybody in in groups of 14. Each side has an hour. We're going to have a digital clock on the wall counting it down. And once your hour is up, it's up. And then we bring the next 14 in and we're going to do that until we have a jury. Right. And so he's got this and that and this and that. And then he has the impromptu hearing to hear Scott Hall's guilty plea and makes a decision there. You know, and this is just not something that uh, Judge Eileen Cannon, uh, either she's not want to do it or she's incapable uh, because I don't you know. She's just not a very competent judge, in my opinion. But yeah, no, I agree with you. I thought he was, you know, fair. It seems like he feels comfortable on the bench. So, so far, I'm, I'm, I'm happy with this. And that expedited schedule for the non-speedies is pretty damn fast. So we'll see what happens in that. Um, also, Judge Jones, the federal judge down there, denied the, remember the electoral, the, the fraudulent electors who wanted to be we're removed. We're federal to, officials. Yeah. We're beca- removed to federal court because, <laughs> because they, they were, they, because they pretended to be electors that makes them federal officials yeah the judge was like nah bro um so latham still and schaefer their emotions to remove to federal court have been denied just as we expected them to be um fonny willis responded to cheese bro's motion to dismiss uh because he's a lawyer I, i mentioned that a little bit earlier he lost that motion and um she also filed a motion for a protective order for discovery, which seems pretty standard in this case. I don't I don't think we have a ruling on that yet. I'm assuming it will be granted. And Trump filed a motion saying he will not seek removal of his case to federal court. First of all, he didn't need to make that filing. Uh, oh, wait, maybe the judge said, tell me whether or not you're going to file to remove by a certain date. So maybe that's why he made the filing. Uh, but he's not. And that was an interesting 
I thought, choice. Because he could have filed to remove and delayed some stuff a little while. But also at the same time, he, he might have been called to the stand to testify. And that's just not on the table for him. Right. And that was when that story broke, I was on a panel with Lisa Rubin, who's a great legal analyst who's been covering all this as well. And she said like exactly that. She said, first and foremost, unsurprising to anybody who watched Mark Meadows' testimony that to be able to try and remove it to federal court, they're going to have to have somebody testify to certain events and actions to justify that. And the only person who can do that is Donald Trump. And you don't want to put Donald Trump on the stand. So that's reason one. Second reason is if sort of the goal at the end of this is to slow walk everything that you can to get it out past the election. Ironically, the prospects of trying to grind down a trial and slow it down in Fulton County may be much better than, you know, ironically enough, if you move it up into the into the federal level, because that would, oh, yeah. uh, you know, potentially speed things up. So I think, you know, those were the, the primary two reasons that, you know, she and I, I agree with her. I think that's exactly it. And it's, you know, it was a very like, you know, this probably the one and only time that Trump and his team will ever say anything nice about the judge, you know, the wisdom of the court to provide him with a just trial and all due process. And, and to me, all due process is like a big flag for we're going to slap every possible delaying motion we can between now and trial mm. to slow this down and to delay it. So, so again, yeah. you know, not it does, you know, on the on the negative side for Trump, I think it certainly locks him into a Fulton County jury, which is in many ways, you know, the chances are potentially not as good for Trump as a jury that would encompass the entirety of northern Georgia, you know, including like Marjorie Taylor Greene's home district and elsewhere. So, you know, it's not without risk, but I think given what he would have had to do, it, it just wasn't worth it. Right. And and a third consideration that, you know, I just thought of sitting here, he 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 hasn't been contentious with McAfee. Um, McAfee is a, a conservative appointed judge. Uh, he was, I believe, appointed by Governor Brian Kemp this year, this past year um, in 2023, maybe like eight months ago. And Judge Jones is, uh, I believe, an Obama appointee. He's he's uh, not a conservative appointed judge. Um, and so maybe he thinks he has a better chance with this judge. Also, this judge is not a woman of color. This judge is not uh, a democratically appointed judge. And he hasn't been contentious with this judge like he has been with Judge Angeron in New York, um, who, who, you know, is, to be fair, not a woman of color, but also is a New York judge, right? Um, uh, he has, he's been contentious with the, with the prosecutors all across the board, no matter what, but he, I feel like he's not going scorched earth with this particular yeah. judge well, he's, for he, those he's, reasons. He's treating this judge the way he treated James Comey up until July 5th of 2016, right? I mean, this is going <laughs> to be, it, it's, it, it's going to be all love and happiness. And this is, you know, the greatest judge and the, you know, the biggest travesty of the judicial system until some bad ruling on a pretrial motion following the January 8th deadline occurs, in which case he will suddenly turn into the Antichrist with the rest of them. So uh, again, it, it is absolute. Trump is not a complicated man. Trump is not a fucking complicated man. He has the same playbook that he uses every goddamn time. And this mm. is the same thing where it's like somebody who is going to be his savior, who is the best, the brightest, straight out of central casting, the strongest judge, the wisest judge. People are saying the best judge ever in Georgia until the first 
negative ruling, and it will pivot 180 degrees and go off the deep end. And, and calling it now, it is, you know, yeah, and it's not hard something. to call. It's not hard to call, right? I, but no. yeah. it's, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens, but I'm not expecting this honeymoon to last. No, uh, but it wasn't right out. Of, it wasn't right out of the gate. <laughs> so right, that's right. That's yes. one little yeah. one little difference. Surprisingly like, enough, still... there's there's one judge in America. Trump is capable of not saying you're an asshole from the first day, right. but you right, know, first time for everything. But it won't. Yeah, last. it's won't last. You're you're right. It will not uh, last long. As soon as maybe that, uh, if we get a trial date set in the end of summer of next year, shit's gonna hit the fan. So. Well, yeah, we'll see what happens with that. But yeah, I like that comparison with the way he treated Comey until, uh, actually, I think it was Valentine's Day 2017 when he <laughs> fired him Oh, he got, he got pretty, oh, no, believe me. He was pretty, the, the, the announcement of uh, not bringing charges, no reasonable prosecutor bring charges, like suddenly the vitriol, it, it came in that day, that same day. Same day Comey <laughs> made the speech, he was complaining about it. And it suddenly went from hero to zero. Oh, yeah. But you're right. You're right. It was a... Same thing's going to happen. It's same same playbook. Same playbook. Mm. Totally. All right. Uh, we have more news to get to, uh, but we have to take another quick break. Everybody stick around. We'll be right back. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn-in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane, and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, Welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis' first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA. As a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler... How much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary... They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing on the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch you will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th, or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now. All right, welcome back. Thanks to these new patrons. Sylvia Earle, Dr. Butterscotch per HD, 
Tess Merrill, Anna Shetler Libby, David Ephraim, and Gumby, damn it. Thank you so much. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for your support and the chuckle and Dr. Butterscotch. Um, Certainly really, really deeply appreciate your support of the program and uh, thank you all so much. So Allison, yeah. what we let's 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 move north. Let's go. Let's yeah. go. Let's leave Georgia. What else we got going on here? Yeah, let's definitely uh, head up to New York. Um, and just shout out to Gumby Dammit. That was a great character by Eddie Murphy on the old Saturday Night Live. <laughs> I appreciate that. Uh, yeah, huge news. Uh, and I mean, like there was so much news, there was no way for me to parse out what the lead was in this particular show this week. But this one's up there. Uh, with probably one of the biggest stories of the year. The New York Attorney General and her $250 million civil fraud case against Trump, the Trump Organization, a bunch of New York LLCs, Eric Trump, uh, Don Jr. Uh, Ivanka's not on this because she filed a motion to be removed and was granted that. So she's not on this, but she's on the witness list. But Judge Engeron, who is presiding over this case, gave a partial summary judgment ruling to Tish James, Letitia James, New York Attorney General, saying it's evident that there's fraud here. We do not have to have a jury determine fraud. And that's massive um, because, you know, it's 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 kind of like the Ruby Freeman Shea Moss thing where they where the judge sort of determined, gave a partial su- summary judgment saying we don't have to determine that you defamed. You did. Uh, and also because of sanctions, you know, we're going straight to uh, to find out, to trial to find out about damages. But here, there's still six other things that need to be proven at trial. And instead of damages, it's something called disgorgement, right? Um, which is the money that you have to pay back <laughs> for all the, the shit that you stole, basically. Now, Trump tried to delay this trial. If you remember, there was a little blip that went up to the appellate court and a stay was put on this trial. But at the end of the week last week, that stay was denied by the appellate court in New York, first administrative division. And the trial, they were like, you're going to trial on Monday. And I can see it on my TV screen right now. He's there uh, at this trial. Um, And something else that the judge ruled, the, the business is in New York um, that each party has 10 days to submit a list of no more than three receivers to take over and dissolve his New York businesses. And he canceled the business licenses, I believe, for Trump, Jr., Eric, McConney, and Weisselberg. They lost their business certificates. So... This trial is going to determine the disgorgement, which is like damages, and also going to determine, um, I believe, whether the receivers just absolutely, like, completely liquidate everything from these businesses, take them apart, um, and, you know, for to to kind of receive the disgorgement that that they're that they're talking about. Um, but he's there today. Trump is there, probably so he could delay his deposition in the Michael Cohen lawsuit, right? Because Michael Cohen suing him for $500 million. <laughs> and he was supposed to be deposed, but he said, I can't. I have to be at a very important date. I have another uh, engagement. It's this trial. Um, yeah. He didn't have to be there. And what's funny is this is a bench trial, meaning it's going to be decided by the judge and not a jury. Uh, Hugo Lowell reports it's because one of his lawyers overlooked submitting the routine request by checking a box on a form. 
requesting a jury trial. And I have a lot of questions about that because I feel like if he really wanted a jury trial, he could say, hey, my lawyer made a mistake. I'm assuming it's Alina Haba, but it could have been, it could have yeah, been from, any of from them. Sanctions are us, right? The law firm of right. sanctions are us. And, and <laughs> But I, it I would... seems like if he wanted one, he could say, hey, we made a paperwork error. We do want a jury trial. And I feel like he would have been granted that. You know, because you don't want to be the person who doesn't grant that and then has a reason, given, giving a reason for him to appeal um, because he didn't get the trial that he wanted. So, but I don't know. I don't know the motivations behind this, if it was an, a mistake that was ignored just because of incompetence or whether it was a, I just, I actually don't want a jury trial. Now, something interesting came up today, and we'll talk a little bit more about that in a second. But the judge said, uh, Judge Engeron said that the end date for this trial is December 22nd. It's, he said he doesn't want it to go past that. So happy new year. Um, <laughs> yeah, that I thought that's kind of fast. Yeah, it is. I mean, look, a lot of this has been the, the, the work has been done at this point. This is the trial. So it, it's quick, but also the thing that gets me is not only is Trump been just unloading on Engeron and just again, unlike down in Fulton, County talking about Judge McAfee has had no shortage of horrible things to say about Judge Engeron. He's also like showed up at court today and immediately like stepped in front of the cameras and went on and on and on about the witch hunt, the corrupt process, Alina Haba, the racist, you know, New York like Attorney sitting General. behind him yeah. trying to be some half rate, you know, like rent a rent a parking lot lawyer person. The kind of person, by the way, who is exactly the type of attorney who would overlook checking the correct box on a, fo- a form asking for demanding a jury trial. Having said mm-hmm. that, no body in his legal contingent as he sat there unloading, about to head into the first day of trial, made any effort whatsoever to say, oh, hey, boss, we got to go inside, which, by the way, everybody is kind of, you know, waiting on the dude to show up. So just a horrible look all around. It is clear Trump, to me, I think, is showing up to make this into a spectacle like everything else. There is no, there is not the slightest scintilla of expectation in my mind that he returns for the rest of the week. I cannot envision him sitting still for eight hours one day for opening statements where somebody on the other side is saying what he perceives to be wrong, unfair, biased, witch honey, just statements about him. The prospect of him sitting through a full day of that today, let alone five days of it, can't see it happening, but it gives yeah, him a Cassidy reason. Yeah, Cassidy Hutchinson wrote that in her uh, book that's out now, right? Like he doesn't have the attention span for the length of a meeting. Um, right. So right, I, and I, he's I, not, I you know, this. and he's. <laughs> as I thought, this is one of my favorite Nicole Wallace things. Getting the look he gets when he doesn't have the talking stick. He's. You can see him. He's gonna. <laughs> and he's gonna. He's gonna cross up his little arms in front of him, and he's gonna set him down, and he's gonna get that little cranky like, "I want to be talking. Why is not all the attention about me and on me?" He will not. His inability to talk. Just by itself, let alone having yeah, to pay like attention. He, I feel like not- he feels like when he doesn't have the talking stick, he's sitting there as a toddler with the bowl of mashed potatoes on his head that Mary Trump wrote about in Too Much and Never Enough, right? And everybody sort of laughed at him and he got so, so mad. Like, I just imagine him sitting there with that bowl of potatoes on his head when he's not <laughs> allowed to speak. Because you're right. He's, that has to be, that has to oh. be like maddening for it's him. hell I, and again 30 minutes of 
No briefer. No briefer in the span of four years in the White House ever came out and said, yeah, yeah, briefing went well. He is in camp. Like, and I've talked to several and know several people on the Intel side who briefed him. The man, you could not keep his attention. You could not keep him on topic. He would not read anything. He would not engage in the discussion before veering off into something entirely unrelated. They were reduced to building dioramas to try and convey important information. And even sometimes that wasn't enough. The yeah. idea that he is going to sit still in a court of law and have people say mean things about him unable to respond or say a word and not be able to like get up and walk around and get a hamburger or whatever the hell he does when he gets fidgety. Can't see it. Can't see it. So, no. you know, we'll, we'll... Me neither. <laughs> and speaking about having to sit through torturous things, uh, I watched that uh, six and a half hour impeachment, evidenceless impeachment hearing this week. Um, absolute shit show. All the Republicans knew it. Uh, afterward, like... They, I mean, they just dug their own little hole deeper. Their very, their very first witness, Republican witness for the committee, Jonathan Turley, who was an impeachment lawyer for Donald Trump. Uh, I can't remember which impeachment. I think the second one, uh, but I could be wrong. Uh, said, uh, "Look, at this point, there's not enough evidence for impeachment articles. There's not any evidence for impeachment articles." And and you could see collectively all the Republicans in the room like, "Fuck, man." That's not what we rehearsed, bro. Um, so it just went and it just went downhill from there. Um, we had the, the Devin Archer testimony entered into the um, evidence six times. They tried hard I think not so to, but <laughs> Dan Comer tried to block it. Pushed until they finally admitted it. Um, Jasmine Rep. Jasmine Crockett was on fire with her um, with her uh, the minute the five minutes that she had. I played uh, that clip this just this past week on the Daily Beans. Uh, if you didn't hear that, you should check that out or go that find it on the Classified in the shitter? Looks like classified in the shitter to me. Yep. Um, <laughs> and it was just, it, it, I I can't tell you, like, I thought some of the, the weaponization hearings were terrible and tragic for the Republicans. This was like the worst thing. And now it's kind of blown up in their faces. It was obviously just um, something Trump made them do. And it was probably to deflect from the looming shutdown that was going to be the fault of the Republicans. Now Matt Gates is coming out saying uh, maybe today I think he's going to speak on the on the floor on Monday. Uh, that's you know we're recording now on Monday you know around after the afternoon time, so he hasn't spoken yet, but he might try to bring a vote to oust McCarthy. Like it is uh, just an absolute mess. It's just a shit show. It's a clusterfuck. It's foobar, whatever word you want to throw in there. I, I really haven't seen it uh, this bad. And it's, I think it's coming to a head. Yeah. And like, look, it, none of this is a surprise. Anybody who has watched James, we're going to find out, Comer, knows that the man has been singularly horrible at running this weaponization subcommittee. I mean, if you looked at the Twitter files debacle, where guess what? It turned out that the government actually wasn't colluding with Twitter, womp womp, that there was no evidence that they were telling them to remove things, that the closest evidence that anybody had about removing stuff was actually the Trump administration asking Twitter to remove something. If anybody watched the weaponization of the FBI, where the FBI provided the day before, based on the committee's demands, evidence that all of these people had had their clearances revoked, that they were engaging in, you know, all kinds of behavior that was against FBI rules and potentially illegal, whether it was the IRS whistleblowers who had their 
testimony rebutted, you know, repeatedly by other witnesses. James Comer is not good at this. His staff is not good at this. And some of the best, all this stuff going on is like the scuttlebutt that is starting to seep out around the edges to reporters. Some people saying Republicans are getting so salty with Comer. They're saying, you know, take it away. Give this all to Jim Jordan. Do not let James Comer near this process because he is fucking it up time and time and time again. I mean, there's no wins. Their column, you know, (laughs) there's a big fat zero in the win column and they just keep adding hatch marks to the losses and the impeachment was no different. Well, and this is, this is because of who they're taking their marching orders from. We see it with Trump's lawyers all the time, having to prostrate themselves in front of these judges and courts to look like fucking idiots. Back in the olden days, uh, when I was doing the Mueller She Wrote podcast, and the you know the courts in the, I think it was for the Supreme Court, or they were arguing to the courts about the the citizenship question on the census, and Trump's DOJ is like, dude, we're so sorry, we weren't expecting this shit at all. We don't want to not be candid in front of you, Judge. Like he's putting everybody in these terrible positions. And that's what's happening here. He's like, impeach him, do it now. And they're like, we don't have anything. Do it anyway. Fine, fuck. And then they go out and do it and they look like asshats. And then it's the same with this weaponization committee. Show it, prove it. We don't have any. We only All our witnesses are indicted Chinese spies. What should we do? You know, like they're getting money from you and Cash Patel and jobs with Mark Meadows's charity that you gave a million bucks to. How are we supposed to present this? Figure it out, you know, and they just go forth and do it and look like fucking fools. That, I think, is the crux of this. Yeah, and it's going to be... Sorry, that was a lot of swearing. (laughs) Deservedly so. And I mean, the, the thing is, it is... People are seeing through it. And even on the Republican side, and what's interesting, you know, you mentioned Matt Gates. There's this scuttlebutt that, yeah, he might move to remove uh, McCarthy, but there's also some indication and reporting that McCarthy is waiting on the uh, House ethics report about Gates. (laughs) And if there's sufficient information in there to remove him, that the Republicans might move to remove him from Congress. And again, you know, that's part of me thinks it's like, well, maybe Kevin's been sitting on that report for, you know, some time now and he's just waiting to use it. But the fact of the matter is, you know, when you get people saying like, the the one thing that is bipartisan Congress is that everybody hates my Matt Gates. You know where he, if he tries this with McCarthy, I don't know that it's going to be successful, and I don't know what happens no. to uh, Gates's future. And there's also discussion about do they move the rules so that you know one person alone, one member can't uh, make motions like this to you know prevent and you know sort of the mischief of any one Marjorie Taylor Greene or Matt Gates or Lauren Boebert or whoever the hell it is, Punk Gosar, that you need you know a two or three. But again, the fact that Republicans are saying we might modify the rules to stop this sort of jackassery, it. You know, kind of says a lot I'm, about. I I think maybe Gates has overplayed his hand, but I think we may. He, find I out think he has quick. because I think he would need Democrats' help to oust Kevin McCarthy. I think it would need twenty or so uh, votes for that. Um, and if I'm the Dems, I say don't vote to oust McCarthy. Then when McCarthy turns around to oust McGates, vote to oust Gates from the expel him. Right. From and the, there's from a the, lot from like, the house. That's what I would be doing. That if I'm if I'm whipping votes in the Dem caucus in the House, I'd be like, let's get Gates out. Because when you remove McCarthy as Speaker, you know, it, you, what's better, the devil you know or the devil you don't know? Who who becomes Speaker? 
And then, but you could have another uh, clown show of a 25 vote, uh, you know, <laughs> election of the Speaker of the House. We have to sit through all that shit again, which would be very, very bad for Republicans. Also, that optic would be bad. There's so many things that have to be weighed here. I do have faith in House uh, Democratic leadership. I know that Nancy Pelosi is probably advising, but uh, but not not necessarily needed. Hakeem Jeffries is doing an outstanding job. Uh, all on his own. And I think that he's going to make the right call here, whatever it is. So I trust him to make that right call. Yeah. And there's a lot, I mean, there's a lot at play and there are a lot of bargaining chips available to both sides. I mean, we got a CR, so we got 45 days of uh, budget, but what we don't have is support to Ukraine. There's clearly bipartisan support from the non-crazy Republican side of the party. So the same folks who would be the logical supporters of Matt Gates are the same people on the Republican side who are opposing aid to Ukraine. So I can certainly envision as part of these discussions about what would it take to get Democrats to support McCarthy and, you know. Yeah, there could be a deal there to be made, right? Like put the Ukraine aid back on the table. Exactly. This is a very, uh, you know, there's a lot of things in this marketplace if you're trying to make a deal. So uh, we'll see what happened. But I think hopefully, and I pray just the sort of inane silliness coming out of the far right Republican Party. And part of it's like, you know, somebody made the point. Like, if you look at the districts where MTG or Gates got elected, the tiny percentage of people that turned out, like the number of voters who actually determined why the government is behaving so horribly. I mean, it's the tiny portion of the oh, American yeah. population. Yet somehow, you know, you get you know, a, a low turnout, election and you know this is where we're at in a gerrymandered so, district and and, right, and exactly. in Marjorie Taylor Greene's case in a place where you've threatened and scared the uh, democratic opponent into walking away before it was you know after it was too late to put another democrat on the ticket um who who knows what's going on but what we can say is that that's definitely minority rule uh, up there at the house all right we have still more news to get to. We have to talk about Rudy still. So let's take a quick break first, though. We'll be right back. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA as a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler... How much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary... They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. 
I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in an Armani suit standing on the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th, or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now. Hey, everybody, welcome back. Finally, like we do in the fourth segment, we want to thank our Hall of Fame patrons. These are our super donors. They, again, make the show go. Thank you. Thank you so much from the bottom of our hearts. Maria Tovar, Caroline Komen, Fran Reichenbach, Charles Jones, Suzanne Ashworth, Punk Rock Liberal, hell yeah, Top Secret, Redacted, Redacted, Orcon, No Foreign FISA, Cindy McNary, and Tiffany Trump was adopted. Thank you. Thank you so much. I really, really appreciate everything that you do for this show. Uh, I, I like, again, always, constantly, every week, I'm totally humbled and honored that you would support us like this. So thank you. Uh, all yeah. right. Should we talk about to talk about Rudy? Yeah, absolutely. It would not be a week's worth of news if there wasn't something new about Rudy Giuliani. And in fact, in this case, there's a new notice to the court for yet more sanctions in the Ruby Freeman Shea Moss case, in a filing on September 29th, and this is from the filing, quote, plaintiffs Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss, the plaintiffs, offer this submission following the court's September 22nd, 2023 minute order directing plaintiffs to specify by this date any additional requested sanctions against defendant Giuliani. And oh, yes, indeed, there were additional requested sanctions. So continuing, <laughs> the filing notes, Plaintiffs respectfully submit to that the court should, one, order additional sanctions against defendant Giuliani, including adverse inferences and preclusive orders regarding evidence relating to his finances, the Giuliani business's finances, and viewer metrics and social media reach. Two, enter final judgments on the court's order on attorney's fees. Three, and enter an order permitting plaintiffs to register the MTC fees order, the Giuliani business fees order, and the sanctions fees order, together, the fees orders, in other judicial districts of the United States, such as, you know, the New York, where more of his assets are. The adverse inferences requested by the plaintiffs include to tell the jury that Giuliani was hiding business assets. Tell the jury to assume Rudy received significant financial benefits from defaming plaintiffs. Tell jury to assume Rudy's businesses are still generating revenue. And finally, prohibit Rudy from introducing any evidence he didn't produce during discovery and that he can't say he didn't receive financial benefits or suggest he's insolvent. They continue... Publicly available information suggests that Defendant Giuliani has the capacity to comply with the fees orders to pay plaintiffs the money he currently owes. Defendant Giuliani has never substantiated his claim of quote-unquote poverty before this court. Instead, when previously faced with the opportunity to do so, Defendant Giuliani demurred following receipt of funds allowing him to retire a $320,000 arrearage owed to TrustPoint. According to public sources, Defendant Giuliani and former President Trump hosted a fundraiser to support Defendant Giuliani's legal defense at a price tag of $100,000 per person. 
That's some chicken piccata right there. One article reports that to quote-unquote generate cash, defendant Giuliani has, I love this one, has quote, hawked autographed 9-11 shirts and pitched sandals sold by election denier Mike Lindell, the CEO of MyPillow. He's also joined Cameo, a service through which celebrities record short videos for profit, unquote. <laughs> I wonder same if time, Mike Lindell's Giuliani? sandals are lumpy. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Nothing like some, some yeah, Mike Lindell, Rudy Giuliani sandals. You're going to get some some serious like leprosy rot coming out of those things. <laughs> <laughs> At the same time, Defendant Giuliani has registered a political action committee, Giuliani Defense, with the Federal Election Commission and appears to be soliciting donations to the Rudy Giuliani Freedom Fund and Rudy Giuliani Legal Defense Fund. Finally... He has income from his podcast, Common Sense, no, uh, no relation of name to content, and two radio shows on WABC Radio in New York. Finally, defendant Giuliani may be preparing to dissipate his existing assets. According to publicly available information, on or about August 7th, 2023, defendant Giuliani listed his Upper East Side condominium for sale at a list price of $6.5 million. So look, Allison, this is it, it. I cannot envision the judge because this is not the first time. I mean, there have been several filings like this demanding Rudy honor the orders of the court to pay these sanctions to continue his discovery obligations, and the fact that somehow he still has decided. You know what? I'm going to keep rolling the dice because the alternative is that much worse. I can't envision the court looking anything but extraordinarily harshly on this. And I, you know, I'm curious to see what comes up because as we, you know, I think we said last week, old Rudy might be on a path to be the first person thrown into jail of this whole crew for contempt in this case of all the things going on. And, you know, he keeps doubling down and I, it kind of surprises me a little bit. Yeah. And, and this filing was due and turned in on September 29th, which was Friday uh, of last week. And so we record this show on Monday. We might have a decision from Judge Beryl Hell by the time this show airs. So uh, if you know that decision uh, and you're already popping the champagne, congratulations. We don't know it as of this moment, uh, but it's not going to be good for Rudy, whatever she decides to do. Uh, so we will keep our eyes out for that filing. You can follow us on Twitter at Pete Struck and at... Muller, she wrote, you'll, you'll, you'll see it there for sure. And I'll, I'll put a huge, I'll put sirens up and everything. Boom, huge breaking, you know, whatever. <laughs> um, it, it's going to be, it's going to be fun. Uh, so I, I, I see her granting all of these, um, just granting what they've asked for. Uh, and then maybe she could determine to take it a step further because, you know, uh, Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss, their lawyer said, hey, this is at the discretion of the court, whatever sanctions you deem um appropriate here to get him to cure his you know co contempt which he's in right and i think she'll find him in contempt and, and what she decides to do with that that's what we'll find out also uh rudy might be making a lot of money off of his uh pillow sandals or whatever the fuck but he's being sued by hunter biden as well and hunter biden has accused giuliani and his uh former attorney who's also suing him for 1.4 right. million dollars Robert Costello, of spending years hacking into, tampering with, manipulating, copying, disseminating, and generally obsessing 
over data that they were given that was taken or stolen from his devices. Hunter Biden's lawyer told CNN, quote, everyone involved is stealing and manipulating Hunter's data, and they should be hearing footsteps right about now. Hunter also filed a similar lawsuit against Garrett Ziegler, who was a Trump White House aide. I believe he's the guy who let Rudy in the back door to that contentious December 19th meeting. He's just generally an overall not a great person. But. So he's suing him uh, for the same obsession about his data. And last week, Hunter Biden sued the Internal Revenue Service, alleging its agents illegally released his tax information that the agency failed to protect his private records through the Jim Jordan Weaponization Committee testimony from those IRS officials. Um, He has not yet sued Marjorie Taylor Greene for showing naked photos of him in uh, Congress, but um, I don't know. We might see something else because, like I said, Abby Lowell says everyone involved in stealing his shit you're going to be hearing footsteps. So I don't imagine this is the final lawsuit that will be filed in relation to uh, the Hunter Biden, quote unquote, laptop from hell. Um, as you know, as people who listen to this program and my other programs know, I still believe it was a Russian op um, that was investigated. I believe it was shut down by Bill Barr. No charges were brought. Um, but then the search was reauthorized by Merrick Garland, and I don't think they brought any charges again. But that also had to do with his dealings with Ukraine specifically. But I feel, I mean, he met with Vertosh a lot and Shokin. He had a bunch of podcasts going on over there in Vienna. That's about the time when this the, the, these data just started showing up uh, on, you know, Frankenstein laptops and who knows uh, who funded it, who financed it. But I, you know, maybe look for uh, Tonzing and DeGeneva to be dragged into this. Uh, it's going to be interesting. Uh, and it's it's going to get uh, it's going to get dirtier before it cleans up. Yeah. And there's so much with Rudy. I mean, look, I, I think there is a very real, if not likely possibility that Rudy dies destitute and in jail. There are just too many. When you look at the legal landscape of what is facing Rudy from Fulton County to uh, the federal indictments, you know, being a un, currently unindicted co-conspirator, although I do think he is going to be indicted federally. When you look at the defamation stuff civilly that is going on, when you look at all these other civil suits where his attorneys, in fact, are trying to get after his assets, one, between the jail time he's facing and two, the financial exposure that he has, I, he can't, he cannot outrun all of this. And his just lack of any sort of common sense that, you know, again, remember, according to media reports, the intelligence community was so concerned about what was going on with Rudy that there's every indication that the White House, and you know, was warned. Rudy is the target of a Russian information operation campaign. And to go into an environment like that, where you already have concerns, you already have counterintelligence concerns about half the people in the fucking West Wing, if it's still so bad... That you're like going to go in and say, yeah, you know, we're, we've got enough concerns about you, but nevertheless, we're really concerned about Rudy and what the Russians are doing. And nevertheless, to have him still sort of, you know, bopping around the White House in December and January, you know, being led in the back door for those crazy meetings with Sidney Powell and Patrick Byrne. I, I just, I think it is finally time is catching up with Rudy and much like Trump. You, know, you can run that Johnny Cash song based on the, you know, the old spiritual. You can run on for a long time, but, you know, sooner or later, God will cut you down. And, and Rudy's time is is close. It's nigh. Yeah. And he's facing that Dunphy suit, uh, his former assistant. Yes. Uh, I guess attorney. Yes. With the 
awful fucking recordings of just a horrible Ugh. sounding abysmal man. Hunter Biden, Shay Moss, Ruby Freeman. Um, I mean, there are so many, so many suits against him, and and maybe more to come. And you're right, all these criminal things. I I think he will, like you said, face charges uh, from Jack Smith's office. Whether or not Jack Smith waits until the trial of Trump is over to do that to keep it clean, or if he's got a way to keep it clean to indict him before then, we'll see. But yeah, that's um, not good. Just like Trump. I mean, he's in court right now, today, uh, about to lose his New York businesses and his ability to do business in New York and, uh, you know, have to pay a huge, huge fines uh, for the fraud that he perpetrated against the people. So, um, yeah, justice, not not necessarily speedy, but it, it does happen. Yeah. And so. across the board. And we're seeing it. And again, just the span and scope individually. For people like Trump and Rudy, but then just all the different people. I mean, God almighty, it just never ends. And that's, it's, it's almost like you couldn't draw up this level of criminality if you tried to, but Donald Trump managed to do it. So yeah. And in 2021, I said that 2022 would be the year of the investigation. And I said 2023 would be the year of accountability. And uh, 2024 is find out. So we're almost there. All right. That is our show. Thank you. We did it. We did it in about an hour. I'm very, very impressed with us for being being able to do that this <laughs> week, my friend. Um, we will be uh, here this weekend, maybe, you know, when we do our bonus episode for patrons this weekend. You get a whole, you get twice as many episodes if you're a patron at the $2 level. Um, and when we do that, we might have a Judge Hal decision on sanctions slash contempt for Rudy. Um, and, uh, you know, we will cover that on the public episode. And if it does happen before then, we, we will, we'll have to talk about it on the bonus. But we will bring you something that we didn't talk about, um, that we're not going to talk about on the public episode. Like this past week with the new uh, prenup for Melania. She's, she's like, you're, you're about to lose all your shit. So we need to... <laughs> To rethink so, our I, I want to make sure Baron is taken care of before your uh, before your creditors, so that uh, mm-hmm. you know. And we talked about Alex Jones, and we talked. I mean, it, it was fun. It was a fun bonus episode, and we'll we'll see you again on this that that uh, bonus episode this weekend for for our patrons. So thank you again so much for being patrons. If again, if you want to sign up, patreon.com slash aisle forty five pod a i s l e four five p o d. Uh, I uh, don't have any final thoughts. I think I've I think we've covered it all, my friend. Do you have anything you want to add? No, uh, we've got it all. We managed to cover the waterfront and, you know, get get used to it because I think we'll be doing the same sort of, uh, you know, packing in a huge amount of material into an hour-long show for the foreseeable future. So buckle in, uh, you know, it's about to get uh, a little rough, at least for some of the folks in Trump land, but we'll keep you up to speed as we move forward. Yeah, rough for them, fun for us. Thank you so much, everybody. We will see you next week. I've been Allison Gill. And I'm Pete Struck. And this has been a cleanup on aisle 45. Cleanup on aisle 45 is written, researched, and produced by Allison Gill with editing by Molly Hockey. Our art and logo designer by Joelle Reeder and Moxie Design Studios, and our music is composed and performed by Adam Orr. Cleanup on aisle 45 is a proud member of the MSW Media Network, a collection of creator owned podcasts dedicated to news, politics, and justice. For more information, visit mswmedia.com. M-S-W Media.
Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn-in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane, and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA as a first-time lawyer. I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler, how much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary. They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, Show me, in a courtroom, how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing in the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th, or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now.